Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the first ever New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and every week we'll be presenting to you our signature mix of politics, culture, opinion, and comment. You'll be able to find it at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. This week, first up, I talked to Staggers Editor George Eaton about welfare reforms. Then we're looking to the future. I discussed the future of the Tory party with political editor Raphael Baer. Alex Hearn talks to Guardian writer Vichy Chakraborty about the future of the internet. And Caroline Crampton and I talk about the future of feminism. Plus, we've got all the best new reviews from books and a little bit of chat about our favourite video games. First was a big day for this government. It was the day that a raft of simultaneous changes to the benefits and welfare system came in. I'm joined by George Eaton, who edits the Staggers on the New Statesman website. George, outline exactly to me how big a day was April the 1st. It was a very big day. You had the so-called bedroom tax come in, which will see housing benefit cut for social housing tenants deemed to have uh, one or more spare rooms. You had uh, big changes to council tax come in. They've cut council tax benefit by 10%, which is going to mean a lot of poor families paying the tax for the first time. Uh, you've got the 1% cap on benefits coming in, so they're not going to be raised in line with inflation. Um, and you've got, of course, the uh, 50p tax cut coming in. So the top rate of tax is falling from 50p to 45p, which is going to benefit um the average uh, income millionaire by um, around 100 grand a year. And uh, you've got uh, the first uh, pilot of universal credit, the government's big master plan to transform welfare. So there's a huge amount going on and um, no, no exaggeration to say these are the biggest changes to the welfare state since it was founded. And it's something that The Guardian and The Mirror have both been very big on in the last couple of days. But how much do you sense that that's cutting through to ordinary voters? Yes, I, I think it's it's... Too early to say, I think, who will ultimately triumph in the welfare debates. Um, I think public opinion may start to shift when they see some of the effects these changes have and perhaps when they're hit by some of them. Because a lot of the time, the, uh, the, the, the right-wing media especially focuses on the, on the, on the scroungers on, on, these, on these cases, um, individual cases. The kind of six-bedroom yes. house that's owned by a, well, someone in Kensington, right? Yeah, exactly. When actually a lot of those affected by the 1% cap on benefit increases, for instance, are those who are in work and who are receiving tax credits. And so I think it's too early for the government to assume uh, that they'll win this one. But 
as as things stand now, I mean, the public especially are, are, are in favour of things like the benefit cap. So this limit of £500 a week limit on the benefits an out-of-work family can claim. Um, so what's Labour's position on this? Because presumably they acknowledge they would have to make cuts to the benefit system as well. well Labour's position is we're not going to commit to doing anything until we know uh, what the state of the economy and the state of the public finances is like. Um, so it's all a case of what we do now if we were in power. So they say, for instance, we wouldn't have cut the top rate. Um, we probably, they say, would have increased benefits in line with inflation. Um, I think their position in, in 2015 is probably going to be we'll have to keep a lot of these because things are even worse than expected. They almost use this, the, the line that... Uh, Osborne used. Oh no, in, not the mess that we've inherited. The mess from the that we've inherited. Government. We've inherited Osborne's mess. But I think they'll seek to um, share the burden more fairly. So they'll. I'm. I'm fairly sure they'll commit to a mansion tax in their manifesto. Uh, they may reintroduce the 50p rate. Um, so they'll seek to raise more from tax rises than from cuts. Um, but I would be surprised if they if they reverse many of the changes that the, the coalition is introducing. Thank you, George Eaton. This month sees the release of two groundbreaking books about our digital future. Both Jaron Lanier and Evgeny Morozov are techno-savvy, but also techno-sceptics. And their books, Lanier's Who Owns the Future and Morozov's To Save Everything, Click Here, take a jaundiced view of tech scene dominated by a few companies. In the magazine this week, The Guardian's economics leader writer, Aditya Chakraborty, has reviewed both books. Alex Hearn headed on up to the Guardian's palatial offices to interview him. Evgeny describes and names two ideologies in his book. Internet centrism, which is this idea that the internet is one coherent thing that can have motivations ascribed to it. And solutionism, which is what you focus on in your review, which is this idea that there are problems. Everything is a problem that can be fixed. And all it really comes down to, all technology and the Silicon Valley mentality comes down to is identifying those problems and fixing them um did you find those coherent interesting critiques do you see them in the world around us and does does he go far enough with them i think Yevgeny morozov is a really interesting guy um and what's fascinating about him is that you can see uh you can see what he would have been in a different incarnation you could have seen what he would have been at, at you know 50 years ago 60 years ago he would always have been a kind of Belarusian academic talking about whatever the current theme of the day was. So it would have been structuring post-war Soviet economies a few decades ago, and now because the internet's big, he talks about the internet. Um, so I should say, first of all, that Yevgeny Morozov is a delightful interlocutor of what's going on in the digital age. Um, but what I found slightly interesting is that you get this sense of a really complex, intelligent man eventually being forced to turn his ideas into a extended TED talk. And you got to it just there, Alex, when you said that he came up with two ideas. In fact, he even has a little joke at the mm. end where he says, oh, I know most books want you to have one big idea, but I've only got two medium-sized ideas. Um, as far as those ideas go, I think they do quite a good job in puncturing some of the happy-clappy evangelism of the internet era. Um, the internet centrism, I think you're right to pick on as being important, uh, and you're right that I didn't talk about it that much. But it is really, it is really vital because all around you, um, and I think this is really common in the worlds of journalism and, and publishing, in particular, but outside too. 
you, you run across these people who talk about the internet as a thing, and you can't regulate the internet. Internet and information wants to be free, and um, all this kind of weirdly pseudo apolitical stuff. When really, what they're trying to do is talk about their own special interests and defend their own special interests. Yeah. So I was saying to Aditya before we started recording that one of the interesting things that that's come out of the Leveson debate is that there's an attempt to regulate the internet. There is an attempt to define journalism and publishing in such a way that it includes blogs. And some of the phrasing and drafting of that has been admittedly ridiculous. Mm. Uh, Small-scale blogs is currently in a draft bill going through Parliament. But a lot of the response has been uh, typically and the perfect example of internet centrism. We've had people literally going, you can't regulate blogs. And it's stated as an assertion. I mean, it's there's no evidence. There's no there's no attempt to even appeal to previous attempts to regulate blogs. It's just, of course, because it's the internet, and you can't regulate the internet. And and the thing the thing about that is, um, you're so obscenely young um, <laughs> that you 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 might not remember this, but I remember hearing this in the '90s when people talk about globalization in the same way. You can't do anything about globalization. It's just his force, and you must accommodate yourself to it. And now people talk about the internet in, in, in that uh, in that regard. Um, and what they're really saying is you can't really mess with markets. There's a market information, mm. we provide information, you can't mess with us and you know, don't don't try it. Of which the, obviously there are three responses. One, uh, you're a blog or you're a publisher based at a physical address and you're a real person, I presume. Uh, so there is obviously sanctions that can be taken. Um, two, and this is the thing that really gets me in, in the in, in as regards Leveson. It's really just a really mini-me version of a debate that happened in America uh, a few months ago over SOPA and PIPA mm-hmm. and about what you could do about internet piracy. And there you had all these you know, the great and good and dreadlocks talking about what, what you couldn't do to, to the internet and how you mustn't mess with the, the internet's role in sort of propagating in other people's intellectual property. But in Britain, one of the key things about our blogs here, and you're actually a, a prime exponent of this, is that a lot of the really well-known blogs here belong to mainstream publishers. Mm. So actually, this idea of that uh, some chap who starts up a, a blog off the Walworth Road is somehow an incredibly important part of the political conversation. Well, actually, most people tend to go to blogs which are affiliated to the FT, the Guardian, the New Statesman, yeah. so on and so forth. So actually, there is something peculiarly provincial about the way that people in Britain try to lay claim to the universal claims of the internet. You also reviewed Who Owns the Future by mm. Jaron Lenya, mm. um, which it's fair to say you didn't find as compelling as Morozov's book. What, what are the problems with it? Um, so, like I said, you can imagine Morozov being an academic down the ages, right? Mm-hmm. I can imagine Lanier being effectively the equivalent of a Rotary Club member down the ages. Because what he effectively is, uh, is he's one of the guys who pioneered virtual reality. He's now uh, working for Microsoft. He's part of Silicon Valley's 1%. He's made out like a bandit from the digital age. Um, but he very wisely and very sensibly sees that there are some downsides of this. Uh, in this book, he's talking about how uh, it helps exacerbate inequality. Um, his problem with that is that his, he, is, he actually comes up with what Morozov should point to as an example of solutionism. Because he says, hey... There's not very much we can do about the politics of this, and I don't really want to contemplate an alternative to the kind of capitalism that we've got. So, 
why don't we make the system so that people actually are paid for giving up bits of their data to lots of Facebook or Amazon or Google, uh, and that's how they'll make a, a living in the future. So you, Alex Hearn, will no longer have a job in journalism, but that's fine because you'll go on an online dating site and the online dating site will take payments from you as you go through all your relationships. And should you get married, they'll pay you a bit extra. And this is actually a scenario that he describes with complete poker face in his book. And not as a dystopia. And not as a dystopia, as actually a viable system. Now, I defy anyone to read that and not think, is this guy drinking the same sunny delight as I am? But as you go through this book, the entire thing is this... It just all reeks of the same wackiness. So he talks about, effectively, he, what he's doing is he's talking about a problem that economists and other people have talked about down the ages, which is what do you do about work when technology starts to advance? What do you do about workers? And it's not a new problem. Marx talks about it very compellingly. It's a post-scarcity society that he's trying to deal absolutely with, right, basically. Absolutely right. But actually, Marx talks about it in the Grunrisse back in the middle of the 19th century. Keynes talked about it in Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And yet, the only bit of Marx Lanier appears to have read, perhaps looked up on Wikipedia, is a bit of the Communist Manifesto. And he decides he doesn't like that because the Germans are really into committees and he's not a committee guy. And he's not read any of Keynes either. And he's not really read an awful lot, apart from a few blogs and a bit of Slate. Um, and so, put that together with someone who has decided that he really likes capitalism, as he knows it, and you get a really thin argument and a really quite under-resourced, intellectually under-resourced book. And it's just so depressing to read a book which reeks of the kind of solutionism that is being critiqued by the other book that we're talking about, by Morozov's book. Because he affects what's really going on here, I think. Putting the two books together is we live in an age in which financiers rule, um, and that should be evident to everyone, but increasingly, finance is in alliance with engineers. So the people who run Microsoft, Facebook, Google, they're all just engineers. And Lanier is an engineer. And the thing about engineers, as you read in Morozov's book and as you read in even Friedrich Hayek, is engineers are very good at coming up with limb solutions to, by limiting the problems that they're dealing with. And actually, you need increasingly, if you're going to deal with a problem in the round, you need a political solution. You need one which is open to democratic debate. You need other people involved. And you need to perhaps get to, you know, seeing things as systemically important, not just, you know, dealing with small fixes, bugs yeah. to be fixed. And Lanier's solution to one of the big problems of our age, which is inequality in an age of technological advancement, is a fix. It's, a, it's, it's an attempt to take out a bug and say, well, all right, so loads of people need to dis dispossess of their livelihoods uh, and they're not going to have very much power in the society we're moving to, but this can all be made good by giving them a couple of cents for each time they click on an online ad. Count me out of that future. Aditya Chakravarti, thank you very much. Hello, I'm joined by our politics editor, Raphael Baer, and our web editor, Caroline Crampton, to talk about the crisis in the Tory party. In this week's magazine, David Selborne argues there is a Tory void. He writes, The grim truth is that the modern Conservative Party is not able to make up its mind on most of the central issues of the day. Raf, you've been writing about this subject for a while. You asked a couple of weeks ago in your column, how can the Tories have message discipline when there's no message? Where did it all go wrong? Well, the important thing to remember about the current state of the Conservative Party is that they haven't actually won an election since 1992. That's actually a really long time. And because David Cameron became Prime Minister, people sort of think that this, this was some kind of political victory. And But inside the party, it doesn't feel like that at all, for two reasons. First, 
Cameron, the whole Cameron project was about defining himself against everything that people thought the party was about before, the sort of modernization agenda, decontaminating the brand and, and all of that. And second of all, they had to take the Lib Dems into government with them, which was an affront to a party that sees itself as naturally owning power in this country with a few, uh, from their point of view, unfortunate episodes of, of Labour interregnum. So it's taking the party a very long time to get come to terms with the fact that it might not be a natural party of government in this country anymore. Uh, and essentially, that is a sort of a deep intellectual crisis, as well as a sort of current superficial political crisis in, in the leadership of the Conservative Party. And do you see it's a case of perhaps there were malcontents who have been you know, silently brewing and plotting all this time and there's just been a lid on them and now they're bubbling to the surface? Are these old grievances that are being kind of brought back again? Well, there are, there are old and new grievances. The old grievance is that uh, essentially David Cameron promised victory and didn't deliver it. And in so doing, he personally, culturally offended a lot of people in the Conservative Party. There are people who... Uh, had fought long battles in opposition in the wilderness and David Cameron came and looked at their sort of campaign medals and their battle scars and said, this means nothing to me, you're completely worthless, follow me to victory. It didn't happen. So obviously they're cross about that. And then the economy is completely stagnant and saving the economy was the raison d'etre for the entire government. So obviously there's a crisis there. I mean, it's quite quite straightforward when you take a step back and think about it. And Caroline, I mean, you monitor the online activities of, uh, of Tory MPs quite closely. Who Who is kind of, who is putting feelers out? Who is kind of trying to build them, their profile? Well, we've heard quite a lot in recent weeks about Adam Afria, who's this um, who, uh, black Conservative MP. I think, correct me on this, I think you're right in saying he was the Conservatives' first black MP. Uh, that's a very good question, uh, which I think the answer to which might be yes. But yes, but we so, should probably fact check that. <laughs> but anyway, he's um, aside from that, he's got a very interesting profile, being a kind of uh, self-made man, all the rest of it. And he's been very much sort of on manoeuvres. These manoeuvres have been rather hyped up by certain elements of the press and the blogosphere that are attracted by, I think, any serious challenge to Cameron. I think, yeah, also the important thing to remember here is that people are looking for ways to hurt Cameron by proxy. So a lot of, you get a lot of attacking George Osborne, for example, and as I say over the economy, um, and saying that Cameron must change his chancellor. I think actually that's unlikely to happen. They're very close and it would be such a signal of failure uh, that he won't do it. But a sort of a briefing against um, Osborne, talking up Adam Afria, mm. talking up anyone, talking up Theresa May, Michael Gove, whoever, Boris, whoever it is, it's a way of underlining the fact that Cameron is a loser without actually quite coming out and saying it. And the next step on that journey is just saying we don't want this guy to be our leader we anymore. actually had i wrote a blog about this the other day that um the telegraph has sort of in effect authorized attacks on cameron without as ralph said putting up a candidate who they want to see replacing it so uh, their whole idea was this idea that we're now in a, a post dave tory party mm. it's kind of already basically said that he's going to lose the next election that's the feeling and they want to know well hang on a minute who's who's next but right? i thought it was interesting that because i think perhaps in a different kind of political climate a paper like the telegraph would have wanted to be seen to be anointing the next leader. Whereas this point, at this point, what they're doing instead is just declaring that there's an opening and just saying it's open season. Come on, guys, let's see who can take it. And talking of Boris, um, I watched the, the documentary about him, which came, he came off, I thought, quite well, actually, <clears throat> even though his family members tried the best as they could to kind of knife him in the nicest possible way. But how much do you think that Eddie Mayer interview has hurt him? I'm not convinced it has hurt him at all, really. It's made him, it may, I mean, it was actually a very good 
scoop for mayor as well in the sense that people were still talking about it two three days later and what's normally a sunday politics show watched by geeks um people were still talking about it on tuesday wednesday morning um we're talking about it now for instance um i think i mean boris didn't come out of it completely glowing but it's the first i feel like it's the first proper uh, interview treating him as a as a serious person, as a serious candidate. He's going to have to feel a lot more like that if he's actually serious about taking the Yeah, well, we should clarify what actually happened in mm. case people didn't see it, which is that he was challenged on sort of personal infidelities and general bits of shabbiness in his private life, uh, as well as elements of dishonesty when he was in dealing with that, when he was on the Conservative front bench. I agree entirely with Caroline. I, the fact is he has to confront this stuff and the, it's an accepted political strategy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To get it all out there on your own terms pretty much and then when you're asked about it again say well I've dealt with this it's like I mean David Cameron had to do it with allegations of his substance abuse or, or not um, uh, call a lawyer someone um, and you just have to sort of take it head-on take a bit of a hit and then you can always say I've answered all the questions I need to answer about this well thank you very much to Caroline and Ralph Critics this week, we begin with an essay by Dylan Jones on David Bowie's latest reinvention. My name is Philip Morn, and I'm joined by Jonathan Derbyshire, the culture editor of The New Statesman. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Phil. Dylan Jones, uh, editor of GQ, has been to the David Bowie exhibition at the V&A, as, as I'm sure you've heard. Um, this is an exhibition of costumes, mm. uh, lyrics, album sleeves, photographs, spanning Bowie's entire career. And of course, it coincides with... Um, the latest in um, the many reinventions of David Bowie. And Jones's argument is that Bowie has um, handled his re-emergence perfectly. It's not, an, it's not an original observation to say that Bowie is a genius of reinvention. Mm. This is merely the latest in a long line going all the way back to um, the transmogrification of David Jones into Ziggy Stardust in the um, early 1970s. Um, along the way, he makes some observations about Bowie's new album. And makes an observation that might uh, intrigue the more musicologically minded of our readers, which is that Bowie has reinvented the art of the middle eight, um, by which he says that Bowie's clearly just got so much music in him at the moment that he wanted to stuff it in, um, as much of it in as he could. And we're very happy to have it. Um, on the subject of music, this year is the 200th anniversary of the birth of Wagner, and so we have Ed Smith this week talking about that. Ed Smith is a um, <clears throat> card-carrying Wagnerian, um, uh, an adept of uh, Bayreuth, among other places. Um, and he is interested first in Wagner's enduring fascination for us, um, but also in um, a perhaps underappreciated aspect of Wagner's career, which is not his music, but his, his endless theorising mm. about music. Theorising which led, quite famously, to Wagner's falling out with um, his philosophical protege Friedrich Nietzsche in the 1870s. Nietzsche wrote a 
quite famous and scabrous attack on Wagner called The Case of Wagner, which Ed discusses in the piece. And Ed sees this, this um, obsessive theorising about his own musical and artistic practice as an expression of Wagner's, what he calls Wagner's heroic personality. And the piece ends um, with Ed describing the experience of going to see Die Valkyrie at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, uh, an aesthetic experience unlike any he's ever heard either in the theatre or when reading a novel. I notice there's, uh, there's, inter- there's a review by you this week. Uh, I've reviewed the final book published posthumously by the late historian Eric Cogsborn. Mm. It's called Fractured Times. Um, and the aspect of it that I fixate upon in, in my review is, his, um, is the nostalgia the book displays for the um, lost world of uh, bu- what he calls bourgeois civiliz- civilization b- before the First World War. Mm. Another piece I'd like to mention is by Andrew Biswell, and it's about uh, Ant- the novelist Anthony Burgess's obsession with James Bond. He was a great fan of Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. And then in the um, mid-1970s was asked by the producer, film producer Cubby Broccoli to write a screenplay for the film of The Spy Who Loved Me. And unfortunately, Broccoli came to the conclusion that Burgess wasn't taking the assignment particularly seriously and the screenplay never saw the light of day. Other reviews that are worth mentioning... Our deputy editor, Helen Lewis, reviews a collection of essays called Fifty Shades of Feminism, which is an attempt to um, take the temperature of uh, the feminist movement in its various guises in 2013. And it contains, among other things, um, perhaps slightly improbably, a feminist prose poem by none other than Laurie Penny. Um, We also have the BBC Radio 3 presenter and proms presenter, Susie Klein, reviewing Jonathan Cott's book Dinner with Lenny which is um, essentially a transcript of uh, the last long interview that he did with the composer Leonard Bernstein in um, 1989 and we also have an interview with Lucy Wadham who's the author of one of the um, books in the Penguin Lines series which celebrates the 150th anniversary of the London Underground. Uh, Hannah Rosefield has reviewed Mohsin Hamid's new novel How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia and Robert Hanks reviews um, a rather nice Faber Fines reissue of Louis McNeese's 1938 book about London Zoo. So if you can't find a book that you want to go out and buy from all of those, well, you should probably give up trying. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Thank you, Phil. As Jonathan mentioned, this week in the magazine, I've reviewed Fifty Shades of Feminism, a new compendium of writing about, guess what? feminism. I'm joined by our web editor Caroline Crampton again to talk a little bit about that and to preview the debate that we'll be having at Conway Hall on the 4th of April, which is now sold out, quite exciting. Um, Caroline, what are you hoping to learn from the debate? I don't know if I'm hoping to learn anything particular. I'm hoping to hear things I've never heard before, if that's not quite the same thing. Um, We've got all all the panellists are people who write for the New Statesman, either online or in print, and we're also hoping to have a long Q&A section. Um, and I'm hoping to hear yeah, ideas I've not heard before and also to kind of maybe be a bit challenged about things I already think. Which is one of the kind of big debates that's happening at feminism at the moment, at least our little corner mm. of feminism, is the idea of, of, of where do you draw the line between questioning other people and where does that become destructive, which again is something that gets raised about the left as well. Um, is there a way that feminists can disagree with each other, do you think, without it be becoming infighting? I hope so. I don't think I know the definitively answer to that question, but I really want there to be a way. There have been some really, if you follow any of this online, there have been sort of saga after saga of people sort of 
arguing on Twitter and writing blogs about blogs about blogs that, and you know, sometimes we host those things, you know, we get involved as well. And most of all, what I come out of those things is feeling is a bit sad. Um, I mean, that sounds awful, but yeah, it makes me feel a bit sad that in the end, we don't seem to have moved any further forward than from where we started. So maybe that's something that I'll learn from the debate. And you're chairing the debate, so you won't get a chance on the night to answer this question. But for you, what is the most important issue facing feminism today? For me, I think it has to to do with equality in the workplace and pay. It really, I, you know, being relatively near the beginning of my career, it I'm just constantly surprised and a bit upset by how few women I see looking ahead of me. You know, looking ahead at the positions that I want to fill in my my career and then looking at others you know the traditional ones that get talked about in this are the city and in politics but I think I think it's true everywhere um, and that really depresses me and I don't feel like we're doing anything about it. I mean I think if we do end up doing something formally then I'm probably going to nominate rape and sexual violence because I think that's been one that I'm actually feeling like there is a cultural shift it feels like that if we're pushing on the door and the door is slightly giving. Um, Laurie Penny our columnist wrote a fantastic piece about the Steubenville rape case mm. Uh, about calling it, you know, our Abu Ghraib, this idea that young people not only would take part in an activity like this, but they wouldn't see anything wrong with recording it, with documenting it. That's how kind of ingrained it was in them that there wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything wrong that they were doing. Um, and that kind of, I think that's something that actually online feminism has been cultural change, and and particularly media reporting has been very effective at challenging. Um, but we will hopefully have to get a chance to talk about some of the uh, the wider issues. I'm hoping that we'll have a chance to talk about race and religion, um, which are both very important issues. I'm hoping we'll have a chance to talk about transgender issues, um, because that's again been another kind of flashpoint in the last couple of months. Um, and I hope we actually get to talk a little bit about motherhood. Um, Gloss, which one of our panellists is, is a mother of two boys. Uh, and I hope that we get to talk, actually, although none of us are you know, over 40, I hope we actually get to talk a little bit about older women, because pension provision for older women is never going to set the, uh, you know, the, the opinion columns online, but it is a really important point. Um, and most of all, I, th- I suppose it makes me feel quite happy that we're that we can sell out Conway Hall and four hundred people. But there are that many people who want to turn up on a Thursday and talk about feminism, and that we can fill a panel purely from people who and feel like we've got the best possible people mm. purely from people who write from the from the New Statesman. Well, on that sort of slightly self congratulatory <laughs> note, thank you very much, Caroline. final section I'm joined by economics writer Alex Hearn in his guise as resident young person um, for a section we like to call Alex's lol section um, although the laughs might be slightly lessened this week because we're going to talk about something I take extremely seriously which is the release of Bioshock Infinite. It's a sequel but not a direct one to 2007's Bioshock by uh, Karen Levine and Irrational Games. It's set in a floating city called Columbia and the themes it explores include American exceptionalism, racism and religion. So, quite something for a computer game. Alex, I know you started playing it. What do you think? Um, it's weird. I I have similarly serious thoughts about video games, but I tend to approach them from the gameplay point of view. And so far, I mean, I've only actually really reached about three minutes into the part where the actual game begins as opposed to the long, deep and fascinating setup. I'm, I'm vaguely disappointed that the gameplay is a moderately standard um first person shooter with rpg elements i was hoping for something which pushed not as far because it is it's a narrative it's a narrative game but which pushed 
the gameplay in, in similar ways to how it's approaching game narratives. And it doesn't so far. Which, as we all know, may be in the fourth minute that it might very well do. And I have to say, I have, uh, having thrown to my hellish work schedule this week, haven't got much further. And I've been devoutly avoiding any mention of, uh, of it in the press because it's one of those games I really don't want the, the story ruined for me. But you do speak to an important point, which is this idea that have first-person shooters got as far as they can do in terms of the game mechanic? I think it's... They're fast becoming the standard. They're already the standard. If you've got, if you are approaching a game from a desire other than gameplay, if you want to tell a story or push technology or uh, create a, a gaming league or anything other than a new type of gameplay, you're going to do it as a first-person shooter. Uh, there's something to be said for the having standards. You know, no one really complains that we have too many live-action movies. And that it's a real shame that someone who wanted to tell a story just did the predictable thing of making it with actors on sets. But it's funny because I've also been playing alongside this a game called The Walking Dead, which is based around um, a comic series. And obviously there's a TV series as well of that. And that's based around something that I would have said was literally the worst thing you could do in a game, which is quick time events. So basically it's kind of satirised as press X to not die. So you very quickly have to press a button and do stuff. I hated it. I hated everything about it. I hated the fact that you couldn't invert the look stick, so I spent quite a lot of the time staring at either the ceiling or the floor. But a little tear escaped from my eye, which is the first time that that's ever happened in a, in a video game. It tells an incredibly affecting story set in a zombie apocalypse, because this is a computer game after all, but about an English professor sent to jail for, for murdering his wife's lover. He finds in the aftermath of this apocalyptic wasteland a, a young girl called Clementine and tries to protect her and tries to look after her in the midst of all this horror. That makes me think that I've now found games which can either do great gameplay or great storyline. And is there anything that you would say marries the two successfully? The last time a little tear escaped from my eye was when I beat a minute on Super Hexagon's hardest <laughs> mode. And that might just be because the eye-watering graphics. But we should probably tell people who don't know about games that Super Hexagon is not the moving story of a, of a father Hexagon's love for his son Hexagon. It's just a, it's just a puzzle game, effectively. It's, it's shapes flying very, very, very fast at you until you stop thinking about what the shapes are and just push the screen in a trance-like state. And it's beautiful. I, it's too hard. It's too hard for me, I'm afraid. Um, and on that terrible bombshell that, as I write about video games for New Statesman, I still find most of them too hard. Uh, we'll leave you. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks, Helen. Today's podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Raphael Baer, Caroline Crampton, Jonathan Derbyshire and Philip Morn. It was produced by Yo Sushi and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back in two weeks' time for our special bumper centenary edition when we'll be celebrating the New Statesman's 100th birthday.
What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.